Well, the Vietnam Veterans Memorial is striking for its simplicity. Etched in a black granite wall are the names of 58,307 Americans. Some walk the length of that wall slowly, reverently, and without pause. Others will stop by a name. It may be that of a son, a sweetheart, a loved one, maybe a fellow soldier they served with. And they'll trace the name with their finger, sometimes wiping away tears. As solemn as that memorial is, I think for 14 people it must be especially striking. Because there are 14 Vietnam veterans whose names are listed on that wall through a data coding error. And though they're physically alive, they're listed as dead on that wall. As we come to our Bible today in Ephesians chapter 2, what we're going to see is that Paul tells us that there are some who are like these men, physically alive and yet listed as dead. And yet this time there's no mistake because what the Bible tells us is they are dead. I invite you to look with me at Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 1 through 3 where we see God telling us, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. When we started our series in the book of Ephesians, I told you that chapters 1 through 3 deal with our position as believers, and then in chapters 4 through 6, Paul will focus on our practice. And as we begin chapter 2 here, what Paul does, you see the word and beginning, and that's a connection to what he's already said about our position. But what he's doing here this time is he wants to remind us of what our position was, what we were like before we placed our faith in Jesus Christ. He says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. I want you to linger over that statement for a moment. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. As Paul talks about our trespasses and sins, he says, that was your former position, you were dead. And he uses two different Greek words here to describe uh, our position. The first word is hamartia. This is a, a common word for sin in the Bible. And it's a word that was actually an archery term. It was used by an archery judge, whereas you took a hundred arrows and shot them at a bullseye. And 99 of those arrows hit in that bullseye area, but just one, even one, were to come outside of the center mark. The judge would walk up, look at your target, and write, you sinned. The word means to miss the mark. It means you were short of perfection. So as Paul speaks about sin here, uh, he's talking about all of us, because the Bible says all of us are sinners. It tells us in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Not a single one of us has been perfect in how we've lived our lives. Now, the second word he uses here is peripatoma. This word means trespasses. It means uh, to slip, to fall, to stumble, or deviate from a path. It was used to describe somebody who crossed a boundary that they should not. And when it comes to sin, when we disobey, that's what we're doing. God has set boundaries, parameters for us. And he says, when you step over those, you trespass. You go outside of the area that I've, I've dictated for you to live your life in. Now, we've all seen signs like this. No trespassing. Violators will be prosecuted. 
And we know what that means. There's a boundary. We're not to step over it. If we enter into an area like that, uh, we've committed a sin. We've trespassed. We've passed a boundary. And it tells us there, there's a consequence. Now, when I lived out in East Texas and I would go hunt on the back roads and in the woods, you would see signs that said no trespassing. But they typically made the consequence a little bit clearer. You might find a sign like this. Violators will be shot. Survivors will be shot again. <laughs> they were letting you know, you cross my boundary. You, you trespass. There's a consequence, and that consequence is death. And that's what the Bible tells us, isn't it? You read Romans 6.23, it says, For the wages of sin is death. God says when we sin, when we trespass, when we go outside of his boundaries, there's a consequence for us. It's a consequence of death. And as the Bible talks about death, there's, there's a physical death and a spiritual death. You see, death by definition is separation. When we die physically, what it means is our soul separates from our physical body. That is the, the separation. The Bible tells us as believers, when a, a Christian soul separates from their body, they go right into the presence of the Lord. Second Corinthians 5.8 says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So when a soul is separated from a body, that is a physical death. Now, the Bible also speaks of a spiritual death. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 14, it says there is a second death. That's beyond the physical death to a spiritual death. And what that one is speaking of is a separation of a, a person's soul from God for all eternity. The Christian is home with the Lord. The person described there is going to the place of punishment we call the lake of fire or hell. And so separation there is a spiritual separation from God for all eternity. And there are people in the world, the position is called universalism in theology, and it says, well, everybody's going to be saved. In the end, everybody gets into heaven. And believe me, I wish I could tell you that were true. I would love to stand up here this morning and say, you know, uh, everybody gets to go home to the Lord. When life is over, God says, okay, everybody's in. But that's not what the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us for those who reject Jesus Christ as their Savior, the payment of sin that he provided for us on the cross, it says, then they must pay that payment themselves. You read that in Revelation 20, 11 through 15, as it speaks of the great white throne judgment. And how all those who stand before the Lord and when the book of life is opened and they've rejected him, it says the other books looking at how they've lived their lives will be opened. And it says every one of those at that judgment go to the lake of fire. And there are no second chances. Hebrews 9.27 tells us, and it, it is appointed for man to die once and after this comes judgment. The believer goes straight into the presence of the Lord. The unbeliever goes into uh, the abode of the dead waiting for that final judgment. And there will only be one destination for those there. Now, people say, but Roger, God is a God of love and mercy and grace. We've been talking about his love and grace all throughout Ephesians. And he is. That's why he sent his son Jesus to come and die for us. That was a sign of his love. That was his mercy and grace. But he's also a holy and a just God. And as such, he cannot ignore sin. The penalty has to be paid. As for those who choose to reject his payment, then they have to pay that penalty themselves. All of us here are deserving of hell because all of us are sinners. Now, the good news of the gospel is that God came to pay that penalty for those who will turn to Christ. Remember, Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but... 
But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord, it tells us. Jesus came and he gave us that great gift of grace. And as Paul is writing to us here, what he's doing is rewinding the tape for a moment. And he says, remember what your old position was. Before your faith in Christ, you were lost. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. He says in Ephesians 2, 1 and 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. How did we get out of that old position? Well, remember in Ephesians 1.5, it said God loved us. He adopted us as sons and daughters. And then it told us in Ephesians 1.14, we've been redeemed. He paid the redemption price to save us. And what Paul is telling us today is those who are saved were not to live as sons and daughters of Satan, disobeying God, living according to our old former way of life. The Greek word he uses here for living is peripateo. This is a word that means to walk about. The Australians didn't invent the walkabout. This is how we live our lives on the earth. It's translated many times as live because it describes how we live our lives. Christians talk about our walk. And this is where we get it from. This is the word. It means to walk about. One night there was a, a mother who uh, had put her son to bed and she went out and she was in the living room and suddenly she hears this crash. And there's this big bang and there's, her son screams out and the mom runs back in the room. She bursts through the door and flipping on the light, she sees her son laying there on the, the floor by the bed crying and she says, what happened? And the little boy looking up with tears as he's wiping away says, I stayed too close to where I got in. And he had rolled out of bed and fallen on the floor. Some of us are staying too close to where we got in, friends. Because it says how we live, how we walk, our peripatao sometimes crosses over into uh, this trespass, this, this word that we saw that means peripatoma, to sin. There's a play on the word. Do you peripatoma when you peripatao? Paul is telling the Christians in Ephesus, some of you are staying too close to where you got in. And as you walk that line close to sin, you wonder why you're falling over into it, why you're trespassing. And what he's calling on us as believers to do is to move away from the edge, to live our lives not close to the edge of sin, but to walk close to Christ. An example that that I see many times, I I talk to a number of men who are struggling with pornography. And they'll, they'll talk to me and they'll say, you know, Roger, I, you know, before I was a believer or when I was young in my faith or when I wasn't living as I should, I'd, I'd read Playboy and Hustler and I'd, you know, look at stuff like that. But I've changed. Now all I look at is GQ and Maxim and the Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition. Man, I'm just like you. God has wired me to be a visual person and those are lusts of the flesh. And what God says is, don't do that. Why do you get so close to the edge and then wonder why you step over and fall into sin? Now, ladies, it's a struggle that I know you deal with as well. Now, women are not as wired as visually as men. You're more story or emotional, often the case. It doesn't mean you can't be tempted by visual things. But what happens is many women will indulge in soap operas or these romance novels or these type of things, and they wonder again why they're feeding that, that, that part of their, their carnal side, why they fall into the, the sin of sexual temptation. 
And what God says to us as men and women is quit walking so close to the line. Quit skirting the boundary and then wondering why you fall over the edge. He says, get away from it. Put that stuff away. First John 2.16 tells us, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father. It says these things are from the world. He says, why are you indulging in these things? Why are you feeding these desires? First Timothy 5.6 tells us, But she who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. Now, Satan is called the deceiver the destroyer, the father of lies. He has a number of titles. And what he does is he wants us to focus on uh, the things of the world. And he wants us to, as the father of lies and as the deceiver, he tries to make us believe that that God is withholding good things from us. He'll he'll focus on the pleasures of the world and, and he doesn't want us to think about what God's telling us here. Some of you here are old enough to remember uh, the days before all the warnings on the cigarette packages. And nowadays, you know, they have these big, bold things or pictures and all this stuff. The Surgeon General's warnings used to be a tiny little thing. Uh, there was a cigarette brand out in the past called uh, Newport. And their whole advertising campaign was focused on uh, the tagline was, Alive with Pleasure. And they would always show these scenes, people frolicking on the beach, having fun. They're in the woods, pristine uh, scenes like this, being athletic and enjoying. And it's alive with pleasure. Now, do you see that little white box down in the bottom corner? That's the Surgeon General's warning. Here it says uh, the Surgeon General has determined that that, uh, smoking uh, is dangerous to your health. Well, that's kind of a contrary message, isn't it? Nowadays, it's a little more explicit. It'll cause cancer, heart disease, emphysema, birth defects. It goes, what they're telling you is these things will kill you. But what the company is telling you is alive with pleasure. And that's what our enemy does. Satan tells us the stuff in the world, pride, power, pleasure. That's what you should pursue. Alive with pleasure. And what he's doing is hiding that little warning in the bottom that God has put out there that says trespassing and sin causes death. Do you see what's happening? And what Paul is doing here is he's getting us to focus on the facts. He's talking about our old way of life, which was dead, and we were in sin, and we were far from God. Now, I told you that Satan's the father of lies. He, he wants us to believe that God is somehow withholding good things from us. But do you know what we know about God? Listen to how the Bible describes him. John 10, 10 through 11, Jesus Christ said, The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. You see, God offers us not just eternal life, but abundant life in the present. But Satan wants us to think we're going to miss out if we're living our lives for the Lord. May I remind you that God is the one who created the good things in the world? And God isn't trying to withhold things from us. In fact, as you read through the Bible, he had King Solomon write these words for us in Ecclesiastes 5.18. Here's what I've seen to be good and fitting, to eat, to drink, to enjoy oneself in all one's labor in which he has labored under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given to him, for this is his reward. God's not holding back good things from you. 
When it comes to the area of sexual intimacy, King Solomon again wrote in the Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verse 1, eat, drink, and imbibe deeply, O lovers. You see, God created sexual intimacy. He's not some prude in heaven. He's not somebody going, oh, God, that's bad stuff. Stay away from it. He's saying, I made it. I gave it to you as a gift. But he says, I gave it to you within parameters, boundaries. And he says, when you step outside of those boundaries, there are consequences. Do you know what the consequences are? You see, God's parameters or boundaries were, I created sexual intimacy to be enjoyed by one man with one woman in a monogamous lifetime relationship. And when we do that, you know what it protects us from, the consequences? There are no sexually transmitted diseases. Doctors will tell you that if you have a a man and a woman who have been uh, virgins when they marry and they come together and they've never been outside of that relationship, they don't bring sexually transmitted diseases into the relationship. There's not unplanned pregnancies. Uh, Some of you say, well, I was surprised by a baby. But it's within your marriage relationship. And you're saying, okay, God gave us this great gift. Let's uh, enjoy it. Whereas if you're a teenager who suddenly finds yourself pregnant or something and you're going, my life is over, I've ruined myself. Those are not the things that you worry about within God's parameters, his boundaries. But we have Satan, the destroyer, the father of lies, who who hides the Surgeon General's warning, so to speak, and says, oh, no, God is robbing you. He's withholding good things. If you follow after the world and its lusts, you'll be alive with pleasure. But Paul is telling us that's not what's happening. Now, if you think that somehow you're missing out on the good stuff, here's a little exercise that will help you. I want you just to uh, take a blank sheet of paper when you get home. Just draw a line straight down the center so you got two columns. And on one side, you can put what I gain, and on the other side, you can put what I lose. You, you put gift, consequence. I don't care how you label it. Just divide your paper. And when it comes to God and what he wants to give to us, put that on the plus side. So let's start with eternal life. If you put eternal life there, can you think of anything in the world that would trump eternal life? Well, game's over right there. But you're saying, yeah, but what about while we're living life here on earth? Okay, great. Let's start with what we just talked about, sexual intimacy. What are you going to gain? Short-term pleasure? What are you going to lose? You're going to have the potential for sexually transmitted diseases, unplanned pregnancies, being used and thrown aside. You, you go down the list of the, the consequences that can come. What, what else can you list? Do it with any sin you can think of. The Bible tells us not to steal. So what are you going to gain? Hey, I got something that I didn't work for or pay for. What could you lose? If you get arrested, you go to jail or you face a fine, you have a record. It now affects your job. If you're employed, you could lose your job. If you're applying for a job, you may be turned away. Uh, People who know you may lose respect for you. You just list all the consequences. Uh, Later in Ephesians 5.18, we're going to read, And do not be drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. We've already seen in chapter 1 that God wants us to be filled with the Spirit. That's a gift that God has given to us. Do you remember all that we received with the Holy Spirit? We receive God's power. He's our protector. He's our provider. He's our guide. You go down and list all that God has given to us. And then you list on the other side, uh, if you do it the world's way and you're drunk, what do you gain? Well, I was a cop before I was a pastor. I saw lots of drunk people. 
And I saw a lot of them in handcuffs sitting in the back of my police car as I took them to jail. Because they got out, they got drunk, and at the worst, I mean, at the lowest level, maybe uh, there was disorderly conduct. They would get in a fight with somebody, and if they weren't going to the hospital getting beat up, then they were probably going to jail. Uh, you, you just keep going down the list. They would end up in jail because of DWI. Uh, so you, you talk about the thousands upon thousands of dollars of costs that goes with that. Uh, even if you don't wake up in a jail cell, uh, you know people who've woken up in strange places and they go, how did I get here? And so you just keep listing down. God saves you from the hangover the next morning. And you're going, yeah, yeah, but Roger, I'm going to miss out on that good time. How many of you have really gotten wasted and remember the good time you had? Other than what you see on Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat. And you're going, ooh, wow, that, that didn't look like such a good time, did it? So what do you gain and what do you lose? You could lose your job. You lose the respect of other people. Not only could you end up in jail, there were tragic times that somebody ended up in a hospital. Or I saw funerals that were a result of somebody's drunkenness, as either they or somebody else were killed because of DWIs. So you look at what the world is offering you, alive with pleasure. And you look at what God says, I'm trying to save you from these consequences, these boundaries of crossing over. Now, to save us from these things, God tells us that we are to set aside our old way of living. As you look at verse 3, notice that it's in the past tense there. He says these things need to be past tense. He says, among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even to the rest. He says, if you keep living your old way of life, you're walking into a trap. Some of you have heard about the way that uh, Eskimo hunters used to hunt wolves. Some of the old school people still do this. They'll, They'll take a large knife, a big knife with a really sharp blade, and they'll go and they'll dip it in blood. And then they take it and they set it out in the the freezing temperatures to to freeze the blood on the knife. And then they dip it back in the blood and they keep doing this over and over until the blood builds up into kind of a, a big blood popsicle covering the knife. And then they'll go out away from the village and they'll, they'll stick this knife in the ground and secure it with the, the blade side covered in blood, this, this popsicle, so to speak, sticking up out of the snow. And at night, the wolves will, having a very sensitive nose, they'll, they'll pick up the scent of blood and they'll, they'll be attracted to it. And as the wolf comes up on this, this blade, it smells uh, not the, the steel, but the blood, and, and it begins to lick it. And as it licks the blade, it tastes the blood. And remember, it's frozen, and, and so the, the tongue of the wolf gets numb as it's licking the blood. But the more it tastes the blood, the more fervently uh, it licks because it's, it's lust, this desire, this insatiable desire for blood is ignited and it begins to lick more and more fervently. And as it does, it wears away the coating of the blood and eventually exposes the steel of the knife. And as it does so, you know what it does? It cuts the wolf's tongue. Now, I hate to be graphic here, but I want you to get a picture of what God says our sin does to us. Well, as the the wolf slices its tongue, uh, now its own blood is flowing, fresh, warm blood. And its, its lust, its insatiable desire for blood is ignited even more, and it begins to lick more fervently. 
And as it does so, it's shredding its own tongue. And as morning light comes, the Eskimo will come back and find the wolf dead in the snow, having blood to death. Its own lust consumed its own blood to the point that it took its life. And that's the picture that God gives to us of what happens with us. As you think about some of the temptations you face and what can happen to us, think about drinking. Alcoholics know this. One sip, one taste can set them off and send them back into uh, drunkenness and their addiction. It's just one little drink which ignites that lust and it goes after more and more. It, it happens with pornography. People start out just kind of looking at something and then it leads to something more and more and pretty soon they're into the hardcore stuff and then they're out into acting into dangerous things. And as that lust is ignited, it continues to consume them. It happens with drugs. You start out with a little and then you need more to get a buzz and then you move from that to a higher and a higher drug and pretty soon you're, you're a derelict addicted and, and you don't care about anything except getting your next fix. And Satan is telling us, alive with pleasure. And what God is warning us is, these things will consume you and kill you. And I've put parameters and boundaries in place to protect you. Not because I'm a killjoy, not because I'm withholding good things from you. These things are exciting and delicious at first, but then they lead to a desire for more and more and ultimately death and destruction. Now, somebody may be sitting here this morning saying, well, Roger, you know, my sins aren't like that. I'm in control. I can stop anytime I want. Then why don't you stop right now? You know, we walk around with a lion on a leash and we think we're in control. But one day that lion's going to turn around and it's going to devour us. If you think you're in control, you're deceived. And you're headed for destruction. Warren Wearsby, a pastor uh, from the past who's home with the Lord, said this one time. He said, all lost sinners are dead. And the only difference between one sinner and another is the state of decay. The lost derelict on Skid Row may be more decayed outwardly than the unsaved society leader. But both are dead in sin. One corpse cannot be more dead than another. Another pastor named John MacArthur describes it this way. Twenty corpses on a battlefield might be in many different states of decay, but they are all uniformly dead. Death manifests itself in many different forms and degrees, but death itself has no degree. Sin manifests itself in many different forms and degrees, but one state of sin itself has no degrees. Not all men are as evil as they could be, but all fail to measure up to God's perfect standard. So what that means is our world is a vast graveyard filled with people who are dead while they live. And some of you are looking at me going, this is a very depressing message, Roger. (laughs) So I want to bring you to the point of hope. I want you to, to, as you think about this bleak, pretty bleak picture with no hope, I want you to look at verse 4. Because it starts with the words, but God. But God. Paul, as he's painted this old picture of who we were, lost and hopeless and the walking dead, he says, but God. 
Now, if you're using the New International Translation of the Bible here, uh, what you see is between the words but and God, because of his great love for us. And while that's a wonderful truth that the translator is bringing in, the way Paul wrote this, these two words, but and God, are together with God in the emphatic position because he is telling us this God is what brought about Uh, the change and the hope for us. The full focus of the fact we were dead and without hope is changed by the fact that God burst onto the scene and he saved us. Ephesians 2, 4 through 7 says, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus in order that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You know, the picture that we have here is what happened in John chapter 11. If you've ever read through the Gospel of John, you know there comes a point where uh, one of the best friends that Jesus had on this earth when he was fully God walking the earth as a man was a man named Lazarus. Lazarus was the brother of Mary and Martha. This was a family he was very close to, and Lazarus had died. And Lazarus was buried in a tomb. He had been in there several days when Jesus came to town with his disciples And they get there, and it tells us Jesus felt the loss and the emotion. It says Jesus wept, and he said, move the stone away, open the grave. And everybody said, Lord, Lord, listen, he's been in there there a while. He's going to stink. He's been dead. He's decaying. Jesus said, open the grave. And Jesus, looking into the darkness of the tomb, the despair and everything, he called out, Lazarus, come forth. And when he did that, Lazarus came out of the tomb alive. Now, he was wrapped up in grave clothes. And, they, you know, we read at Easter how the resurrection occurred, and they looked in the tomb, and they saw the grave clothes. It wasn't just a pile of sheets and wrappings there. They would slather it with spices, myrrh, and other things, and it, it formed a hard cocoon. So here's Lazarus. I mean, he literally, you know, his feet and his head are the only things not cocooned. And he comes just kind of out of the grave. This guy who was dead is alive. And Jesus says to the crowd, unbind him. Let him go. Cut the dude out. Set him free. He doesn't need those old, wretched, decayed grave clothes anymore. He's alive. And this is the picture for us. As Paul writes this for us, he's telling us we were dead. He says, but then Christ came along and he spoke into the tomb that we were in. We were dead and decomposing, but rather than leave us like we were, Romans 5, 8 says, but God. But God demonstrated his own love toward us in this while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. He said, we could not set ourselves free. We couldn't come out alive. But Christ came and he went to the cross and he died for us. He paid that penalty. And because he provided that, those who receive him are alive. God didn't do this because we were good enough or deserved it. Rather, it's because of what we read in Ephesians 2, 4 through 7. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. 
You see, God loved us like we were dead sinners. He demonstrated his love while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. But God loves us too much to leave us like we are. He says, unbind him or her. Let them go. Don't live according to your old way of life. He loves us too much to leave us like we are, which is why Paul is telling us today to change our life as he describes our new life here. It's not just the one we're going to have when we arrive in heaven. In the Greek text, the the form of the verb that's used here is called an aorist constitute. And what that means is it's a completed action in the past with present results. Simply put, what it means is we're not to wait till we get home to heaven to start looking like we should as glorified believers. He says, I want you to start living as a saved Christian right now. You were not saved to sit. Once you come to faith in Christ, he says, there should be a change in your life. When we read that Christ Jesus is seated in heaven, it was a picture that those that Paul was writing to understood well. The book of Ephesians was written in 61 AD. The temple in Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD. So the Jews and who had come to faith in Christ and the Gentile believers knew all about the temple and the way things worked. You would go there to the temple. You would bring your sacrifice. You would offer it. The priest, Jesus is called our high priest in heaven, and it tells us he is seated. You never went to the temple and saw the priest seated. There were no chairs in the inner sanctuary. There were no uh, benches for the guys who were at the rail to receive sacrifices to sit down. They would take a sacrifice, they would offer it, then they would come back and they'd take the next sacrifice. They were working because the sin was constant and the sacrifices were constant. When Jesus Christ came and he paid our penalty for death, the scriptures tell us when he went to the cross, he paid the penalty of sin once for all. And that's why he's seated in heaven. There is nothing left to be done. If you read John 19.30, you'll see that as Christ was dying on the cross, the last words as he was, the, the last statements of Christ from the cross in John 19.30, he breathed, before he breathed his last, he said, it is finished. You've heard me tell you that the Greek word used there is teteleste. It literally means paid in full. What was paid in full? The wages of sin is death. Jesus said, I've paid the penalty. I've closed the account. I've canceled the debt. If you've come to faith in me, the account is closed. And so as we read here that we've been saved, it's, it's, and that we're then to, to live in a way that reflects that. It's not, I'm not telling you that you do good things to get saved. Do you remember what we saw in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9? For by grace you've been saved, what? By faith. You've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one should boast. You see, Paul is not telling us to earn our way to God. Do you know what we earn by how we live our lives on this earth? The wages, what we earn, the wages of sin is death. What he's telling us here is that we have been saved as a gift. Imagine for a moment that I give you a gift. So I get a nice box, I wrap it up, I put a pretty bow on it and I hand it to you. And, and you rip into this gift and you look at it and you go, wow, this is great. It's what I've always wanted. And I say, do you like it? Yeah, it's great, Roger. Thank you. And I say, well, you know, I paid $50 for it. Can you give me $50? And you're thinking, well, that's not a gift. Well, why not? I wrapped it. I put a bow on it. I handed it to you. And you're saying, yeah, but if I pay you for it, Roger, that's not a gift. 
And yet, isn't that what we do with God? We hear that God has a gift for us. For by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works. And we say, but how much do I owe you, God? No, really, really. What did it cost? How many times do I go to church? How much do I put in the offering plate? How many good deeds do I do? What's it going to take for me to get to you? And God says, you can't do it that way because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's why Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, God says, I have a gift for you. You can't earn it. It's not by your works. Now, while we're not saved by good works, it should lead to good works. Look at what verse 10 tells us here in Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. As Christians, we're not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. Do you see that? We're not saved by good works. We're saved for good works. There's to be a response in our life. Whereas we receive God's gift of grace, we recognize it and we respond in an overflow. Not because we have to, but because we want to. We do it as children, not as slaves. All the religions of the world say, earn your way to God. Do these things. Go die as, as a martyr in order to get to, to the paradise. That's not what God says. God says, I'm the one who came and died for you to bring you home to heaven. When Paul tells us we are God's workmanship, the Greek word he uses here is poimeia. Now, if that word sounds a little familiar to your ear, it's because it's where we get our English word poem. Poimeia is where we get our English word poem. There's an unknown author who, who wrote this short poem. It says, you're writing a gospel, a chapter each day by the deeds that you do and the words that you say. Men, read what you say, whether faithful and true. Just what is the gospel according to you? What is the gospel? The word gospel literally means good news. The good news is that while we were sinners and far from God, God left his throne in heaven. He came to earth. He went to the cross and he paid the penalty of death, the wages that we owed. And he gives that as a gift to us and all who will receive that gift by faith will be saved. That is the gospel message. It's not about adding in works. Remember in the book of Acts, we saw how the Jewish leader said, well, it's faith plus circumcision. It's faith plus being good enough. It's, God says, that's not the gospel. And when it comes to us sharing the good news of the gospel, it is about what Christ has done, not what we do. But the way in which we live, the things that we do, communicate the gospel of grace. As I said, we've not been saved to sit, we're to serve. We're not just to talk about our walk, we're to walk the walk. We're to show people that we have moved from our old way of life to our new way of life. When people look at us, they should not see the walking dead. They shouldn't see us looking like Lazarus coming out of that tomb, uh, still wrapped in our old dead way of life. What God said at, at there is he said, unbind him, let him go. And God tells us the same thing today. Put aside your old dead way of living. You who have been saved, reflect that in your life. As those who are saved, we're called to get rid of our old grave clothes and to put on our grace clothes, living and serving in a way that others can see our Savior, Jesus Christ. And as we end today, we're coming to the communion table. 
And as we come to this communion table, what we are seeing, again, is a a physical reminder of what Jesus Christ did for us. It's, It's a reminder, a tangible picture for us of what Jesus did when he left heaven and he came to earth and when he died for us. Christ gave us uh, the picture of communion through the Passover supper that pointed ahead to the Jews of the Messiah that would come. And, and he took elements that were a part of the Passover, the, the bread, and he pointed them to how this represented the Messiah, Jesus himself. And as he broke the bread there at the Passover supper with his disciples, he said, this bread is my body. He was saying, this is the sacrifice that saves you. Remember in John one twenty nine, uh, John the Baptist said of Christ as he came, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Bible tells us that the, the sins uh, in the past that had physical offerings brought to the temple could not remove it. Hebrews tells us when it came to the, the blood offering, it said the blood of bulls and goats could not remove uh, the penalty of sin. But when the blood of Jesus was shed, it washed away our sins. As he said on the cross, paid in full account closed. So as we come to this table today, we're reminded of God's great gift of grace. And it may be that somebody is here today who's not yet received God's gift to you. And if you're a person who's been trying to earn your way to God, being good enough to get to God, you can't do it that way. Jesus Christ said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. But he offers you the opportunity today to turn from your sins and to his son Jesus to be your savior. And if that's your desire, if you recognize today that you need Jesus as your savior and you're ready to accept his gift of grace, then when the elements are passed, I want you to take the bread representing the body of Christ. I want you to take the cup representing his blood and say to God in in your heart and mind as you take this, Jesus, today I'm turning from my sin into you to be my savior. I accept your gift of grace. And for the rest of us who have accepted him in the past, this is a time for us to be reminded as well that maybe we've been living according to our old dead way of life. It's a time for us to remember that we have been saved through the blood and the sacrifice of Christ, and we're not to live that old way, that old dead way. So look at the sins you've committed, confess those, prepare your heart and mind to come with clean hands and heart as we take the meal together. I'm going to ask that you hold the elements and then we'll take them together. So will you serve us, please?
as we saw today, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were far from God. We were lost and without hope. But God, but God demonstrated his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The body of Christ did it in remembrance of him. stained by our sin we had the mark of death upon us and nothing we could do would remove that but then God gave his son the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world to come and to shed his blood for you and me to wash away our sins the blood of Jesus that has made us clean drink it in remembrance of him Lord God, thank you for your gracious gift, your gift of new life that is available to all who will turn to your son, Jesus, to be our savior, our personal savior, the one who took my place and theirs on the cross, the one who went there and paid that penalty of death that we all owed for our sins. We thank you, Jesus, for giving us that gift of new life. As those who have received it, may we walk in the newness of life that we have. May we not look like our old dead way of life, but may we walk out of here this morning, leaving our grave clothes here, committed to living as Christians, men and women, boys and girls, who reflect the newness of life and the gospel of grace we've received. Make us your messengers of the good news in the places you send us. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.